Welcome to the D&D Roundtable, your premier source for D&D news. We cover everything D&D from Wizards of the Coast. We cover updates from the convention circuit. We cover new and exciting products, casts and streams, and events for D&D. We cover happenings in organized play. If it's D&D related, we cover it here. Industrious Ferret is by Kevin McLeod at Incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Hey, we'd really appreciate it if you dropped us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the D&D Roundtable. Since it's spooktober, we're getting into some scary content. And we are very privileged to have with us Rob Schwab, the sort of masterclass of horror for our generation, and Alan Patrick, the new guy who is bringing horror to the next generation. And we are super pleased to have you gentlemen with us today. Is it the Demon Our, Lord and the Worm Lord? Yes, oh, the yeah. Demon Lord <laughs> and the Worm Lord. <laughs> Ooh, for the price of one. Yes. Very happy uh, so to be our, here. Thank you very much for having me. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Uh, our get to, to know here. you question, uh, which all four of us will answer, is what is your favorite piece of horror content that you draw inspiration from? And I, that's a hell of a question. Like which one of your children do you love the most, right? Uh, but it, it could be your, your favorite, most recent one that you saw or your most recent one that you used. So you can narrow it down a bit if you like. Who wants, who wants that first, Alan or Robert? Sure, I'll jump in. Uh, I've got a two-way tie. My, my top choice is The, the Thing, the, the remake it, in 1983. That's what I was going to use. Oh, no, feel free. Like there, There's yeah. a lot you can pull out of it. Uh, second up, the, the, the tie would be Requiem. God, I'm getting an echo. Would be Requiem for a Dream uh, for the psychological aspect of it. Uh, it. The choices that the characters make, they feel like the right thing at the time, but in retrospect, not at, at all. And it comes back to haunt them. All right, I dig that. I dig that. Uh, the, uh, since since you used the thing, I'm going to use the thing as well, uh, yes. and I'm just going to lead right in from there. Uh, so I just recently wrote an adventure about a horrible thing cracking out of the ice, and I'm like, well, shit. There's only one answer to that, and uh, of course, I went and watched the thing, and then the new version of the thing which is actually the prequel to the thing because you know the thing starts with the dog running into camp uh and it was surprisingly good i did not have high expectations for it but it was a lot better than i than i was was mm -hmm. prepared for and both are quite quite terrifying and they oh, yeah. they're equal part like jump scare body horror and the gross out which are all you know part of the building blocks of Mr. Schwab. Well, for, I, have, I have a question for you. For you. Uh, did you see the original The Thing from the 50s? 
I have not. I have not. I've, I'm referring to the Michael oh, Carpenter yeah. one, which is the 80s sometime? It, that yeah. was the 83 remake. Yeah. I saw it in sixth grade on VHS at my friend David Brieger's house. It wrecked me. It set, up, uh, set the tone for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, really? Tell us yeah. more. Oh, it's, What's it like? It, what about it? Gotcha. I think what, what grabs me about I think, well, obviously, monster design is is delicious. The escalating paranoia as the various scientists are uh, wrestling with the fear of infection and the uncertainty of uh, the experience of uh, devolution that comes about from exposure to the, the stuff. So there's a lot of that kind of cooking, and that makes um, it, it gets me, it, it's like Viagra for my brain. But I have two other things to, to follow Alan's lead. The first is a book, and it is one of my all-time favorite books, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. That is probably one of the bleakest, bleakest books I've ever read, and it informs a lot of my uh, philosophical outlook on the universe and living in it. Uh, it is, uh, for those kids at home, Thomas Ligotti is probably the greatest horror writer of all time. Uh, and he inherits the throne from uh, the pre, from other, from, he, he's evocative in a sense of only the bleakness that comes from, that only Lovecraft could really pull off, but he does it better because it's more accessible and more immediate and it doesn't torture you with Gygaxian prose. Uh, it is a uh, delicious book, uh, Conspiracy of the Race, and it posits that humanity is basically an infection and the only cure for this planet is to stop, basically to stop having children and exterminate ourselves. So that is the first thing. Uh, the second thing uh, would be the movie Hereditary. Um, oh, that's really good. That was, yeah, I really like that. Uh, that movie does, I'm not a, I adore the genre of horror, but I get angry about horror quite easily. Uh, <laughs> if I go into a horror movie, I want bleakness. I want the proper British ending. I want the vanishing end, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the 1988 Danish film, The Vanishing, would be a good place to look for an upsetting afternoon or evening. But Hereditary uh, takes us on a it basically takes us on this journey of utter despair and deconstruction of the family unit and does this both visually uh, and more importantly uh, through the narrative as it unfolds as character after character is just basically finding their end and it and it ends in a way that is very much uh, schwalb in the sense that it is uh, as a hail satan kind of ending meaning that there is no good ending the bad guys win, yeah and you feel very terrible which is how i think that a horror movie should work but you know that's me 100 percent. i saw that shortly after i watched the ritual yeah oh so good mm -hmm. my shameful confession is that i don't actually really like horror movies and stuff it gives me really bad anxiety night terrors or used to anyways but <laughs> um i I am actually blanking on the name of it now, but when I was younger, there was this one that I saw. It's basically like people going in, uh, you know, finding uh, alien civilization things, and 
it's just kind of like they start getting picked off one by one and just that like really kind of surrealness of don't fuck with stuff that you don't understand it has bad consequences it's kind of always like resonates with me as far as like I don't know spooky stuff because I'm not really one for the I guess the gore and stuff that some people traditionally think of although that's not all horror most of what you described there isn't necessarily gore it's that just awful ah yeah the dehumanization that you get to watch unravel in real time uh so for our our listeners who are not familiar with y'all's body of work if you'd please give a brief statement uh to our listeners telling them who you are what you do kind of what your background is maybe listing a couple products you've been involved with or recently published uh that are pertinent to to horror who who wants to go first i'm gonna defer to rob on this Okay, uh, I my professional uh, uh, nom de plume is Robert J. Schwab. Uh, I have been involved uh, in all kinds of good things, uh, from Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons, where my work appears in all three of the core books and several supplements. Uh, I have worked on extensively on Fourth Edition. In the horror context, you could probably say the my version of the book of Vile Darkness was kind of horrific. Uh, then we also had in third edition. Second wrote, that opinion, horrifically wa- awesome though. Well, thank you. Uh, That's third the book edition, you showed uh, me. Yeah, one of you. Of course. In third edition, I worked on Elder Evils and Exemplars of Evil. Um, I worked in the Book of Fiends for third edition for Green Run in Publishing, and also for the fifth edition version of that same product. Uh, then, but really, the where my where my heart and soul is at the moment. Uh, is Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is uh, it's kind of like, well, it's, it is a horror fantasy role-playing game where your characters are stomping, or stomping around in the apocalyptic ending of a fantasy world. And it is, uh, if Dungeons Dragons and Warhammer fantasy role-play and probably cult had a three-way, this is a gooey residue that you find in the church pew. <laughs> Exactly. And on that note, it's so good. <laughs> it's quite good. It is for our listeners. It is not uh, a five E D and D system. It's is it's its own system, yep. which, uh, given Rob's uh, extensive experience with the last several editions of D and D, is certainly informed by D and D. But it it's smoother. It's got a lot of. Uh, a lot of ways with that streamlined the system has been streamlined yeah like the the fast and slow i really like that especially the cool coin you have for it thanks mm-hmm. yeah demon lord is a is it's a standalone game what's the next it's a it is its own game engine uh it does bear as you said some dungeon dragons in its dna but you also can find a bunch of other games i've worked on it as, as well uh it is where i'm working on a new version that's a little bit more family friendly called shadow of the weird wizard and that should be hitting Kickstarter sometime next year, early next year. Ooh, I am looking forward to that one. Mm. All right, Alan, how about you? Well, uh, following up, uh, I learned a lot actually from Rob's products as I was developing my own my own writing style and my own interests. Uh, Elder Evils is something I reference quite a bit. Uh, I've been doing a lot of content generation surrounding Caius, the the uh, the worm that walks, right? The, the elder slimy worm thing that is entombed 
wherever in your world you you need him and don't want him to be. Uh, in fact, I've got some more content coming out for, for Caius here very, very soon. I got some approvals to do a hardcover print of my D&D Adventures League content surrounding Caius. Uh, we're doing a little bonus chapter uh, to go with that. So I'm, I'm really excited. That should be actually up like end of next month. So uh, outside of that, I mean, I've, I've spearheaded some of the, the, the horror interest for D&D Adventures League. Uh, I, I, I wrote some Mind Flayer stuff way back in season three. Uh, and then I wrote the first uh, like Barovia-centric, Ravenloft-centric adventure for season four called The Beast. And that dealt with werewolves. And really the only outline I got was it's got a werewolf in it, make it dark. Uh, also, we need this so that all the other authors can uh, it, like, get a feel for, for that storyline. So uh, no pressure. <laughs> uh, Merwin, Sean Merwin wrote the intro for that, but that was like bridging from the Forgotten Realms into the darkness that is Ravenloft, right? And we wanted to set an appropriate tone. So I dove in and uh, like the beast is, is really, I mean, it's got some personal notes, sure. But uh, it was a lot of fun to put together. Uh, I got some really great responses from my playtesters. They knew it was horror going into it, uh, but it's not that in-your-face gore grotesque horror. There's plenty of room for that if that's how the DM wants to go, but uh, that, that's the kind of horror I enjoy where it, it plants the seed in your mind and makes you question your motives as a character. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And then you get to the end and you're like, oh God, I did a thing. Like, that's, that's the kind There's of horror thing game that, that I gets really done enjoy in that adventure uh, writing, sure. running, and playing. Yeah. Question everything you do in the uh, the first Worm series when you wrote. I was ready to be a martyr for the cause. <laughs> My character was. I mean, not me particularly personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one that deals with uh, sentient items. I wanted to be armor. He wouldn't let me. <laughs> I, you know, we all we all have disappointments. <laughs> So one question that we get from our listeners quite frequently, uh, who are all game fans, or who are, we hope, mostly game fans at least, are, you know, how did these people get, quote, the dream job? Uh, they're very interested in how you got to where you are. Is writing your full-time career? If so, how did that develop? Why aren't you working a desk job? Or are you working a desk job? Uh, well, in my case, I'm insurance IT. So I do Red Hat Linux things uh, for a large company uh, with a colored shield. <laughs> uh, I'm not a full-time writer. I, I love the idea of it, but being creative on demand like that, I think is horror in and of itself. And that terrifies me to the core. <laughs> Rob, bonus points to you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I got involved simply because I was attending public events and running games for people and just playing with my own DM style. I, I ran mostly Dungeons and Dragons. I would run some Pathfinder and a couple other things here and there, but uh, I just ran games for a lot of people and they got to know my storytelling tactics. And some of those people would eventually go and uh, they, they would become writing directors for like the fourth edition Living Forgotten Realms or for some other storyline systems. And private chats over lunch. Uh, we talk about ideas and stuff and that that's kind of how it grows. Uh, 
I, I do have to say that uh, one of my coolest contributions in, in my mind was uh, actually, again, with, with Rob here. Uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord came out and I pestered him and I pestered him. Hey, do you need some stuff? And eventually he threw me a little project regarding the Lizardmen. And uh, I, I, I turned some things over and very little of what I submitted was actually removed. And uh, he gave me some really, really good feedback. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, it's a good. It's a really good product. Thank you very much for your contribution, sir. <laughs> uh, how, how did I get here? Uh, I'm not really sure. This is a, normally a drinking day, which is not unlike many other days. But uh, yeah, so I got started by accident, um, and really it was hubris. Uh, it, it, in order to become a, a game designer at any level requires a staggering amount of arrogance and self-confidence uh, because otherwise you would realize the futility of your mission. You have a better chance of becoming a professional NFL football player than you are of keeping your lights on in this particular industry. Uh, there are probably a very, a very small handful of people who actually do uh, this as a full-time gig. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My story begins after my, after I completed college, after my second go around, and I thought I was going to become a great novelist. <laughs> and instead, I uh, pitched a book to, uh, this was in the, in the thick of the third edition D20 explosion, pitched a book to a company. There were fewer writers than there, than, than there was interest and money to publish. So they were eager to take my submission. And that led to a couple projects, which eventually landed me the job at, as a D20 line developer at Green Running Publishing. Uh, while I worked there, I worked freelance for everybody else. So I had a full-time job and a full-time job as a freelancer. And I was averaging about 80 hours a week doing design and all that. Uh, that eventually led to freelance work with Wizards of the Coast. Um, then I, Wizards of the Coast hired me as a contract designer because uh, I was unable to move to Seattle. Uh, so I had a full-time gig there and I was exclusive with Wizards until uh, right around 2011 when I started, I was invited onto the design team for what is now fifth edition Dungeon Dragons. Uh, that I stayed there through every iteration of the team uh, and finally left when I sent over the last bit of word content for the Dungeon Master's Guide and was uh, summarily let go to find my fate elsewhere. And that could have meant a return to freelancing, but instead it became a uh, a fool, another foolish endeavor of starting my own company. And I've been working for myself, doing a little bit of freelance here and there ever since. And I've, uh, my company's been around for five years. It's five and a half years, somewhere in there. So yeah, it was, uh, again, it was not, it was, uh, none of this was by design. I, I just happened to work, I, had a, I happened to have a pretty good work ethic and, uh, and, and, and great people who gave me opportunities that, uh, that would made it possible. Um, yeah. When Rob says he has a great work ethic, he's being modest. Uh, if anyone wants to Google him and see how many things he done did right, uh, it's a lot. It's Very many, prolific. many words. Yes. And um, I mean, um, there's a bit of a pattern to everyone that we ask this question to. No one ever really intended to get into this. <laughs> It's, it's, it's funny how often like people just like make it and they're like, it was an accident, completely an accident. Um, 
It's true. The, the first thing that was pitched to me was uh, a, a local guy in Detroit came to me and he said, I'm working on some fourth edition LFR stuff. I've played at your tables. I have a project I want you to write. Make the players cry. I mean, give them hope, but then take it away. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came up with, I, I think the players called it Shadow Voltron. <laughs> That's one of the things that I called it. <laughs> oh, so For you're sure. <laughs> Well, um, as this episode is uh, centered around like crafting horror content, I think it'd be kind of important to get an idea of what does horror mean to you in the context of game design and storytelling? Because it means a different thing to, you know, most people. Um, you want to take that one first, Rob? Sure. Um, I, uh, horror uh, is, well, it's kind of like this. Imagine you're going to a pie shop and there are different flavors of pies. You I have like a low pie. fantasy pie, you have a horror pie, you have a cartoon character pie or whatever else. It's a different flavor of the same kind of act uh, that you'll experience from the same uh, activity that you're engaged in, which is the eating of pie. So if you want a horror flavored pie, then uh, it is one way for us to flavor the products we make. Now, I think that horror can be something that is used like a thin coat that you apply to something else that's not necessarily designed for horror. For example, Dungeons and Dragons, as a game, is not built to terrify your players. There are instant, you can certainly make it do that, and you can add content and special rules and atmosphere, and you can tap into some of the, uh, the major buckets of shock, dread, and despair, uh, which I certainly want to talk about later, but uh, you can use those in order to uh, to manipulate the players with experience, but it tends to be kind of like a one-off thing, right? If you look at Ravenlock, for example, which is the first instance, uh, well, the second instance of a truly horrifying uh, adventure, the first instance would be the uh, the aptly named Tomb of Horrors. Uh, it's kind of in the, it's kind of on the label, on the tin, one, one might say. Yep. Yep. Um, those those are, as I said, those are those are ways in which you can take an existing product or pre-existing property and turn it into something. Now, I don't think I would extend that to Lord of the Rings as much. Lord of the Rings certainly has horrific elements, but it is much more, at least from a consumer uh, standpoint, the characters approach the horror, but they triumph over it. Uh, and that becomes a more struggle good versus evil. But then there are also horror when you're designing a product specifically to deliver the horror experience. Uh, which would be, you know, Call of Cthulhu, Cult, uh, Demon Lord, and other games like that. So I think it's more of, um, it's the, how you want to, yeah, I think it's, well, it's, it's really the flavor, but it's uh, also uh, how that flavor interacts with the experience you're hoping to make, a one-off deal or an ongoing experience. Interesting, whether it's in the DNA or just bolted on afterwards. What about you, Alan? For me, uh, horror is really, uh, it, it's relatable. Like, yeah, you're looking at the, these dark elements of dread and despair and all that, but at the end of that experience, you see things, in, an appropriately crafted horror story. Uh, you see things that you can rationalize, that you can in, in, insert into your own life. And in this case, like it's into the character's daily lives and such. You, you uh, 
you can draw parallels between the horrible things that you saw and some of the actions that you had to take to resolve that situation. And you may not realize it for a while, but in retrospect, that's where that gets, that's where it really connects with you. Um, a, a good horror story is something that sticks with you and it's not necessarily just shower of gore. Like that is definitely its own genre. But for me, it has to have a certain emotional resonance. And, and that's what makes it impactful. That's what makes it worthy of sharing. A good horror story is the story that you share with the people uh, around you, that you share with your fellow players afterwards. Maybe you, you talk about, you know, hey, did you play this adventure? Did you play this system? Uh, what did you do when you got here? Because, oh my God, let me tell you how it impacted our future actions and, you know, how, how this NPC reacted to it later on. And you, you see shades of that in other uh, other types of storytelling, whether it's, you know, film or theater or, or what have you. Uh, but the emotional connection is really the foundation of, of horror, in, in my opinion. I think that's certainly an interesting perspective on it, because without some sort of emotional connection, I mean, is can anything truly be horrifying? Right. I, I think that is very much correct. It's the, like, Hereditary has stuck with me uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, for I'm not going to spoil the movie, just go watch it, it's awful, <laughs> um, in the best sort of way it's awful. But it, horror is something that makes an impression in those uh, primitive instincts enough to, to kind of hang on to you for a while. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, yeah. So, so the next question, why? Why do horror? Out of everything out there, fantasy, cartoon characters, cyberpunk, D&D, &D, what have you. Superheroes, the opposite superhero, of horror. Superhero, yeah. Why, why horror? I, I guess I'll jump in. Um, whereas the emotional connection is the foundation for a good horror story, hope is the other side of that coin. Uh, there has to be hope or the emotional connection doesn't work, right? So why horror? Because you get to see both sides of those. You get to see both of those incredible dynamics uh, expressed. You get to give your, as a, as a game designer, as a, as a storyteller, like you get to share some of those hooks with the, the players, with your audience in the hopes that they pick that up, right? So you get to pour your own hope into it. Uh, for the players though, they, they get the chance to, stretch those heroic wings or those neutral wings, whatever the case may be, and try and do the right thing. And hopefully they succeed, right? But they're gonna take something with them. And what they take with them is that that mix of both the light and the dark. And that, that's what helps them flesh out their stories as well. I uh, follow up with, I think that um, for me, and I think for a lot of people, Horror as a genre provides the same sense of catharsis that riding a roller coaster does. Mm -hmm. You just like you might go to hundred percent. You watch a you watch a comedy because it entertains you and you laugh and you feel better. A horror movie done well should make you do should do the opposite. You 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 might have a good laugh at yourself for your reactions to it, but then you're going to be haunted by it. Uh, and I think that when we are craving, I mean, human experience is about the stories. A lot of it, we have our interactions with each other are relating events that have happened to us through the, through the medium of the story. And so 
every story has uh, has a genre, obviously, and there will be hopeful stories and there will be despair despairing stories. Uh, and I think that uh, for me, I like to shock and to fill people with with revulsion and by what I create. And that for me is a, I know that I'm entertaining them if I'm doing it well. Uh, and and it's and it's the trick is to do it without uh, creating repugnance. I think is the difference. Yeah. I find that, I don't know, I guess cheap horror too often goes for like just that shock value of the the jump scares, the the, the whatever, you know, just in, in your face trying to make you like, you know, cheap screams, I guess. And really well done horror, uh, you know, as you both said, it leaves a lasting impression on you like mentally, you're like you're thinking about it days, weeks later, you're like, you know, that a lasting terror of like but what if this really happens <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah and i guess then so that kind of you know circles around to like writing good horror you can write cheap horror you can write good horror what what are some of the biggest challenge in writing good horror games and uh, how do you write good horror games sure yeah I'll jump on this one like a grenade. Uh, so <laughs> we, uh, I alluded to this earlier. Um, I think there are three principal techniques that I would use, that I use, uh, and I label them shock, dread, and despair. Um, shock is easy, and we get, uh, we, and you could, it, you'll see it in all sorts of movies when they are just going to get you to try to jump out of your seat. And nothing anymore. Jump scares are, are cheap, 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 easy to make, easy to do. All you do is put the least expected thing on screen. And in fact, if you watched uh, Family Guy, that's probably just as much shock that you would have as watching it too, because it's just what you don't expect presented for you. Presented you just to you. cue the music. That's all you right. got to do. But shock is a good introduction to the horror experience in that it jars you out of a sense of ease and familiarity. Uh, if, uh, for example, if you're playing a D&D game and you're fighting a bunch of elves, and then when you kill your first bad elf uh, and that elf uh, collapses into a squirming pile of writhing maggots, it's, it's, it's shocking to the players because it violates what they believe to be true about this game world. Dread, I think, and uh, is is the sense of impending doom. It's the, real, it's the realization that things are going to get worse as you proceed through the story or the adventure or scenario, whatever else. And then despair is when you know that you have no good decisions you can make, that anything you decide to do in the game will have negative repercussions. And that right there, that's, that's, that's horror. And that is the whole package. Because when I go into a D&D game, I have the expectation of, I'm gonna find my plus one flame and longsword, and I'm gonna kill the dragon, and I'm gonna get all this money, and my gnome's gonna be a super powerful badass, and all this other stuff. And then I'm gonna come back next week and make a little bit better. And then I'm gonna get all my pie and all my cake and all my toys. But see, if you play in my game, and I'm running through that horror thing, that gnome character is probably gonna find that that flaming sword consumes souls that every time it does, and it creates a big stain. 
and the more souls you've taken with this weapon, the more times you realize that a random stranger somewhere within a mile of you has a heart attack once a week, twice a week, three times a week. And now you can't get rid of it because every time you do, it comes back. And then, the, and so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a severe case of herpes. So then you, <laughs> you think about like, and the dread is like, instead of going into the dragon's lair and just having clean, you know, like a Disney film where the walls are sparkling and maybe glittering with jewels and some signs of dwarven tunnelers and some sort of historical elements. No, 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 no. What you find are steaming piles of dragon crap with the partially digested bodies of its previous victims, some of which are still alive, having passed through its digestive tract, and they're begging you to turn back before it's too late. And despair is when you realize you finally encounter that dragon, your little gnome with his accursed sword covered in the shit from the that you've been passing through in the, in the tunnels. That despair comes when the dragon incinerates all your friends and you're the last one left alive. Mm -hmm. There's my period. Okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that was beautiful. That was so good. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if you were going to breathe in there. Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I have gills. Uh -huh. Breathe in the dragon lair? Ooh. No, well, that's true. You don't want to breathe in that dragon lair. As we've established, it's full of shit. Steam and shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alan, would you like to follow that up? <laughs> uh, <not really>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that was that was very eloquently said, and I would expect nothing less. Uh, but uh, yeah, for for me, I guess the biggest challenges in, in writing a good horror game is you want to deliver those elements, but like you really want people to connect to the subject matter. If they don't care about what's going on, like in the case of the gnome, like why why might the gnome care about what's going on? Well, random people are dropping dead. Once you learn that, that begins that 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 horror journey in, in that aspect for sure. Uh, but finding a hook that brings the characters in, absolutely, but. Also, you want to bring the players in, um, and that can sometimes be a, a trickier prospect because you need everyone to buy into this this crafted reality, or it's just not going to have the the resonance that you want it to have, and that's that's really what you want, right? You want that that resonance, you want that takeaway experience, so that these people can go and share this this terrible terrible thing with everyone they love and care about. In this case, both the characters and the players. <laughs> uh, like getting people to become emotionally invested so that they're happy to spend their time being terrified out of their skin. Uh, it, like that's, that's the trick. I, I think, uh, Paige, actually one of the first things you said to me when I was running a game for you years and years ago was uh, that uh, your pants are now brown, but that's okay because you loved every minute of it. True facts. <laughs> and that wasn't even a... a, a, a horror game that was a standard game that I was just reacting to your decision mistakes were made <laughs> <laughs> to be fair Paige and her gaming group also, also you know often make decisions to where they lead down the path of despair <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a good point though about getting invested I know like going back to the the Ravenloft thing like the uh, well not really the intro adventure but the what most people ran as the intro adventure has a really good hook of getting most people in there. There's these two kids outside of this house and you come out of the fog and you're like, you're either like, you're like, oh, you're worried about these kids. Or you're like, what the fuck are these kids doing here? Something is amiss. The house is unguarded. There's probably treasure. You got those, you know, two, two kinds of players there. And so like, it's a great hook into that. And then like, once you get inside of the death house, like 
there's a lot going on there. That closet. The, the closet. closet. The, the closet was a particular favorite of mine all 13 or so times I ran it. Um, you know, it, it's always nice to meet your doom in a broom cupboard. Oh, like. I, I killed my husband uh, in about the second encounter in that adventure twice. <laughs> no, first time I ran, I TPK'd my entire party there. The broom came out after them, and they all backtracked as fast as they could directly into the next door with the Banshee or the Wraith, whichever it was. Uh, wraith, I think. Banshee's well, really rude. Regrets were immediately had. Or, or maybe ghosts. Some kind of incorporeal undead. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess in, like you talked a lot about your, your um, the stuff that you've done and you know what you put into something to give it horror elements. Can you like walk us through um, something that you've made that's kind of horror horror elements to give people an idea, really feel for what you do? I mean, you kind of have a little bit, but yeah, with the with the design process mm-hmm. of a of if something that is horror. <laughs> I, I, one of the things that I find, and I, this kind of ties into the previous question too, and this is a, and it is challenging when you when I'm working on a product of this particular vein, is that there is always a tension between scaring the players and scaring their characters, uh, and if scaring the players can make the players uncomfortable, and the biggest way, easiest way to make somebody uncomfortable in a D and D game is to put somebody they love at risk. Uh, then also there, but, uh, and then also, which could be just mean their character's functionality. If you are playing an adventure and your character is permanently maimed, you're, because of this horror adventure you've gone through, that's, that, that's disappointing and true despair. So you have to kind of, you know that the character will be scarred by that experience, but if the character becomes unplayable, then you're just disappointing the audience. But that's just that's a, that's something that I have to I wrestle with all the time, and it's part of where a D and D game you don't lop off a limb to unless you're unless unless you've got a, a way to make that or you work out the details of how that character overcomes that loss and becomes justice whatever. Um, but in the case of um, let me actually answer the question. Uh, we do that. <laughs> now I'm back uh, to thinking about lopping off limbs. I'm like peril at the port, the season seven epic. We lost a lot of nope. limbs. <laughs> limbs left and right gone just gone <laughs> uh, so i guess with uh probably the easiest one for me to, to point at is uh demon lord demon lord uh shout of the demon lord gives character advancement occurs when you complete a storyline or a, basically hitting a milestone if you complete the adventure your character gains a level or i rather the entire group gains a level and and so on and so what happens is is that i usually make those the characters are relatively are, are fairly fragile to start with, and so you have the immediate, the immediate fear of being outgunned and outclassed by everything around you. Once you overcome that, uh, and this is kind of the, the overarching horror experience, your character becomes more competent, but you learn uh, just how hopeless a task you're, you're fighting actually is, which then kind of taps into some of that dread of what's coming up down the road. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the campaign, uh, it usually has, uh, it usually ends with um, kind of a Pyrrhic vis- victory where they, somebody has, there has to be some great sacrifice or victory comes at such a catastrophic cost that uh, the world is forever changed. And that's structurally through the campaign design is, is produced, is 
kind of tapping into those elements uh, as you play that game. Question answered. Check. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Alan? Uh, so one of my products that has horror elements, uh, I, I, I'm going to harken back to the beast that, that Ravenloft adventure. Uh, I wanted people to connect with the story. I wanted it to be monstrous without being full of monsters, not your traditional monsters. In fact, throughout the entire adventure, and this, this adventure has been out for a number of years now, so I feel mostly okay sharing some of the details. Uh, throughout the entire uh, adventure, really, the only monster that's present is a single werewolf. Uh, there are some dire wolves if it's a powerful party, but everyone else is human. Uh, because really, like, humans make the worst monsters. Like, they, they are capable of... Only if by worst you mean best. <laughs> we are the most monstrous race. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, you know, sentience is a, is a real double-edged sword in that case. You know, like, you, you can follow your desires but what are your desires? And in The Beast, we, we follow through and we see this, this couple, uh, and we, we learn about it in retrospect, but this, this couple is trapped out in the woods and a thing happens, only one of them walks away from the campsite and you have to figure out what happened. Uh, ultimately, you do find out what happened and you have to figure out what then, knowing what you know, how do I deal with what transpired? So is the person who walked away responsible? What caused everything to happen? Uh, for me, crafting that good horror story, I, I wanted people to attach to the content, but I also wanted them to question the motives. I wanted them to get to that end point and look back over every action that had transpired and the things they had agreed to, the things they had agreed to do, and ask themselves, is this worth it? What separates us from the monsters? And who really are the monsters at the end? Uh, and that's very different from a, a game like uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Uh, and I, I adore Shadow of the Demon Lord for very different reasons. Uh, but in the case of, of the Beast, like I wanted there to be hope. I wanted the, the players and the characters to have an opportunity to say, I am going to rise above that. And I'm going to be this shining paragon of, of heroics. And that's what I'm going to do. And then of course, in true Ravenloft fashion, uh, that all gets undone. And uh, the, the, the characters are then revealed to be part of the monstrous escapade. Fair, very fair. <laughs> Uh, so me personally, I have, I have written some horror stuff. Uh, I particularly my home games have uh have been pretty horrifying he just uh, and it got published you did i i did just have a horror adventure that got published but i i really love with my home games doing horror and i am a big fan of the gross out and all sorts of body horror um when do you choose to use the gross out and why <laughs> <laughs> I like to use it all the time. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, what's uh, yeah? I don't use it in a way that I think it, that that seems well. I don't do it for the reasons that I think that a lot of other people might use it. I use gross out of horror as a release valve for the pent up pressure of the of the other things that are going on. Uh, if I if I go into 
extensive detail about the bowel movement of the troll at his last, as in, while he's in his death throes. Uh, I do that because there's, it, it brings some sort of comedic element. It's like watching Evil Dead. Evil mm -hmm. Dead has horror, oh, sure, sure. but it's funny. And really the funniest things are the, are the really gross stuff when, uh, when Ash is chops his own hand off and he's chasing the hand around the room or the hand <laughs> an eyeball appears on the body or something like that, where you can kind of make, it, it could bring some levity to uh, an overwhelmingly dark thing because really there's nothing too scary about finding you know, a carpet of faces. I mean, it's scary, but that's shock. But uh, if you have the characters discover uh, the gross app stuff through their own actions, then then uh, there'll be a moment of hopefully relief uh, or not. I got a little liberal in my interpretation of Horde of the Dragon Queen after like my 14th run through it. Ended up with some curtains of fresh intestines hanging. My players were like, why are we in here? <laughs> So like, That's, that seems like a Tiamat thing to do. That's a very yeah. valid question. Why are yes. you in here? Sausages. <laughs> That's actually what somebody said. Oh, sausage. <laughs> and then uh, and then they bit into it and it was, um, you know, lower intestine. Oh. Mm. <laughs> That's not good. Well, I highly encourage them not to go. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, so, you know, use the, the gross out and I, I, I pin towards it and the man I've warned you off of this several several times <laughs> mm -hmm. it's gonna get gross um yeah so you know on the not necessarily the flip side but um the other kind of thing of horror is that you know there's like scary but like good and then there's like scary but bad like how do you tow that line um, as a writer and then like how do you like tow it as a, as a player and make sure that like your your tables that you're running your games that are, are available are um you know safe for for everyone to you know be comfortable <laughs> okay uh, apparently this was thrown over to me uh, so uh th finding that difference between scary but good and scary but bad as you called it uh it's about not only identifying the, the 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 comfortability of your your players, and that includes as as a writer, you know, identifying the comfortability of your storyteller, DM, GM, you know, whatever you, label you've given them, as well as the people who are playing through the story. Right, everyone's a player at that point. Uh, but it's also about finding comfortability as that uh, DM, GM, storyteller, what have you taking a few moments at the beginning of a game or at the beginning of a design session and, and asking yourself or asking your players, like, how far do I want this to go can be helpful. But what I've found in my own experience is really the most helpful is identifying that limit and then providing tools to push past, past that if it becomes necessary or if it becomes wanted. So uh, playing, to, uh, playing to a certain limit and then, you know, maybe a little sidebar, sidebox, whatever with, you know, hey, if people want to really ramp up this experience, here are some powerful terms that you can add to it. Uh, for example, in some of my own work where I've, I've had uh, Caius, the, the worm that walks, the undead god of worms, 
when the minions of Caius consume a target, when they knock a target to zero hit points, but haven't necessarily killed them, you know, that figure falls to the ground. And if it's a table that isn't real good with horror, you know, uh, th I'll just say that that body falls to the ground. And in the text, it'll call out how there are some worms sort of writhing around it, maybe like gnawing away at some of the skin. But for a, a, a group that has decided they want to ramp up that experience, the body falls to the ground and is immediately consumed in a cocoon of undulating worms. And, you know, you can throw in some some other words, some some very evocative things to really ramp up that 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 feels good, but still scary, right? Because that, that's what they've asked for. You can work with your players to identify that limit and then continue to push that limit out there. Uh, of course, that does require that you listen to your, your players as, as well, so that when you see physical body language, when you have you know a straight language, when you have a, a, a verbalized concern, you can immediately pull that back and you can play to the established level, right? Um, it's, it's very much a, a game of trust that you have to play, uh, but when appropriately played, you can get a lot of really cool benefits out of it. Uh, for, for me on the, uh, the line is, I think one of the things that I, I think there are a lot of shortcuts, right? Some writers and creators uh, employ to, uh, you know, to, to, to use the horror, right? Like we talked about the jump scares earlier. But like there are some things that I just won't ever I won't ever deal with in my games, and like there's not going to be rape, there won't be child abuse, there might be child killing, but there probably but there's not going to be situations of utter hopelessness or not, utter helplessness, and and I also don't do animal cruelty, and those are as a creator I know where I'm drawing the line. However, I also know that there are some things that I talk about that are going to upset people. Uh, not everybody really likes to, to consume a product that is as dark and awful and unpleasant and disgusting as the things I can make. However, I also feel like it's kind of on the tin, you know, <laughs> again, to use that, to use the expression again, you go into Friday the 13th and you shouldn't be shocked that there's going to be a lot of blood, a lot of bloodshed and, and some serious violence. Uh, because, and some of that is buyer beware, right? You're going to have to just trust the audience to know what they're doing. Uh, I would never package, I would never pull a bait and switch with my audience though, and package something as Candyland and then discover halfway through that all the candy has razor blades in it, mm -hmm. uh, which would be a really fun adventure, I think. But that's, that, so it's, I think it's about packaging and presentation and managing your audience's expectations uh, and then as far as like safety tools are concerned, um, and I think this is a really, really big one. Um, and I broke this rule once and I still feel bad about it. Uh, there was a player who is just dreadfully afraid of spiders. And uh, rather than take seriously his fear, I presented his character in a glass bottle thing that was filled with spiders. And it really freaked the player out because I, I got him immersed and he was very unhappy. Uh, and that taught me something very valuable, even though it didn't destroy the friendship uh, or ruin the game. It just made me realize that there is a line and you should never cross it. When, if a player is, is, has, gives you parameters, uh, then it is your duty, and I mean that with every sense of philosophical, moral, ethical obligation with the word duty, to not exceed those parameters. 
if the player changes what those parameters are, then you get to just, just then you must adjust accordingly. If somebody says, I'm fine with whatever, and then you have uh, some grandma with a stone baby at the end of a umbilical cord coming out from between her legs, and she's using it as a flail, that might be that might be too much for a player, and then you just don't do that again. So I think it's uh, there is no time in a role playing game situation where the rules are ever etched in stone. It is a living contract and one that has to be maintained rigorously for as long as you explore dark and edgy elements. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So. Yeah. Do you utilize like um, in your content and like published content, um, like content warnings on your product pages or anything like that for people who might not know what Shadow of the Demon Lord is? I mean, I know like- Everything is branded as this is a horror fantasy game. Uh, and- That is a type of content warning in and of itself. Right, and words have meaning. And, uh, and I think if your product says it's a horror game, you can expect that it should be horrifying, and mm-hmm. if and I know and it's some of my some of my uh, supporters, big supporters are are uh, love the game, but they realize they don't want to run it for their kids or family, and I understand that, which is why we've got Weird Wizard coming, which is more family friendly. That doesn't mean Demon Lord goes away, but it's right there. Mm-hmm. Or, and I'm so I'm like there was I'm not a big fan of giving away all the goodies mm-hmm. as a way to insulate an audience from something terrifying. If you know you don't like spooky, gross stuff, then then you shop accordingly. It's like, I don't eat meat, so I don't go to a Brazilian steakhouse sure. and, it, and be pissed off when I, there's nothing for me to eat. I think that that's an apt comparison. Yeah. You know, as long as like your game is properly branded and labeled as like this is like legitimate horror. I, th- I think, you know, that counts as a pretty serious content warning in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see where I've lost my place. Actually, I, so that leads, that's kind of pre- best practices as a writer or DM to make things safe uh, for your players. On the other hand, any advice for DMs or other writers trying to get their horror up to 11. How to make it more horror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing I can say there is horror is going to be different for everybody. I mean, uh, Rob and I have a lot of overlap between the types of horror that we enjoy, but we also target very different things. Anyone who's interested in writing or running horror games should identify what they feel is truly horrifying and shoot accordingly. Uh, that said, they also need to make sure that they're having a very clear discussion with with their gamers about what the intention is. Uh, because the DM, the GM, the storyteller is very much a player at the table as well. Uh, so, you know, maybe we want to be horrified telling the story, or maybe we just want to gather in the 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 effects of the horror that we're, we're sowing out into the public there. But, uh, I mean, best practices is really 
identifying what drives you and being clear in that communication. And Rob, as you said, it's, it's also about accepting feedback sometimes on the fly. If we see that one of our players is actively struggling at the table, maybe because we're, we're hitting the wrong target words, we're using undulating and they, for whatever reason, just can't stand that because it's too evocative. It's too moist. It's, oh, it's too moist. Yes. <laughs> uh, or, you know, maybe they're trapped in that big glass jar of spiders. You know, yeah. that's, that's something that we have to be ready to change our tactics so that we can continue to run up to the line of horror without necessarily crossing over it into something that becomes damaging. Well, I, I'm, what I'm talking about is, let's say your, your table's in a good place, you know where the line is, everybody's very comfortable for it, with it. How do, you, how do you really scare your players as a DM? What are the best... Like, is there ways to do it with your voice or ways to do it with your description or? There, I, I've got a perfect, well, a, a really good, a really good example. Um, I was running uh, a Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Now, keep in mind, when I run Shadow of the Weird Wizard, I run it like I do Demon Lord, even though the game is not designed to do that. My descriptions are the same and it's just as gross and silly as, as the other. But I was, uh, we, were, we were playing and uh, they were doing this investigation in this town that I had the players build together. So they collaboratively created this town and I had all the, each player give me one secret about the town and write it on a post-it note and I took all those and kept it. So what I did, so first of all, doing that gives the players a physical stake in the community because mm -hmm. they helped make it. And so now the community is partly theirs, uh, but, uh, and then, well, like, all right, but back to this, back to the scene. So they're, they're, they're fighting, there's some, something has happened. And then, uh, and, I get, and I, I'm keeping my description relatively uh, at, a, at a similar vocal tone. And then out of nowhere, my voice jumps in register and I'm crawling on the table as I'm making this horrible noise as this guy, this demon starts tearing its way out of this non-player character that they were just talking to. And I do it uh, to, to shock one of my players. And she's just like, oh, fuck. And so <laughs> it was a moment where I could see that her character was in was, was shocked. And then she herself was startled. And that was that was pretty, pretty good. But I have but specifically, <laughs> I would I would say that uh, making it personal. And, and uh, Alan, you talked about uh, this earlier, uh, making it personal, make uh, giving the player, having something that the player could lose that is deeply important mm -hmm. to their play experience, uh, making the environment seem normal, but slightly off. There's a great scene in In the Mouth of Madness when uh, Sam Neill's character goes into this uh, bed and breakfast inn thing. And there's a whole dialogue between him and the old woman, but the camera pans around the end of the this, this scene and we see that her naked husband is handcuffed to her ankle behind the, the counter. And that for the audience is just unsettling, right? In fact, my wife watched the movie, that was, she pulled the parachute, pulled the ripcord on her parachute and was done. Wow. Uh, so, because it was just so weird and so gross. And so why, I mean, and it raises questions of like, why is this old woman have her husband handcuffed to her ankle? Why is he naked? Uh, you know, things like that, right? And those are the kind of the things that I think, I, I, those are the tools I like to use to reward players who look too closely to places they shouldn't and to undermine their sense of what is normal and stable. And then also finally, uh, 
reward their decisions they make with even worse outcomes. That makes sense. Yeah, sort of pursuant to that too, uh, one of the things you, you mentioned there is taking a an approachable normal environment and then changing one element of it. Uh, I have a thing in one of my, in, in the first of the Caius adventures where when I run it for people, uh, I, I don't describe it until much, much later, but once the characters arrive at the main adventure location, uh, because I normally run this at an in-person event, I just have my hand under the table and I'm gently tapping, very, very lightly tapping on the bottom of the table in a, a little bit of a heartbeat rhythm. It's not until like three quarters of the way through the adventure that I actually describe that there is a uh, this, this thundering heartbeat rhythm that has begun to emanate through the halls. Um, and maybe I'll pass notes to some of the more perceptive characters or such, but uh, once they realize that every time I've done it, I've had the players actually stop and at least one of them, their eyes get real big. And I, I keep knocking on the bottom of the table in that same rhythm and the players stop and they just, they immediately, Shh, Bob, stop, you know, Janet, stop. What are you doing? Listen. And I just keep going. And that's when they realize that this normal adventure site has some really otherworldly stuff going on because then they start questioning like how long has that been has that been going since it has been going since the beginning <laughs> how do we stop it <laughs> do we want to stop it if we stop is that bad <laughs> that was my question if it what happens if it stops <laughs> Well, I'm sure those will be, uh, I'm sure that this is going to cause a lot of our listeners to sit back and go, hmm, and think about their approach to horror and their execution of it as potentially writers and also DMs and even players. Uh, so here's, here's a final question. Mm. Let's just say you have all the time and money in the world. What horror product would you like to produce? Mm. Dream project. <laughs> no one's stopping you. <laughs> uh, the one I've got, I've, I started on, but I haven't been able to finish and mostly for the reasons of time and money, uh, but it's called Lost and Found. And in this game, you play a little child who has, uh, wakes up one day in a really spooky orphanage and you don't know why you're there. You don't know what happened to your parents, but there are other orphans that are also there with you. And as you explore the orphanage, you find other children who have lost their eyes because a tear spider has dropped from the ceiling and drink their tears until the eyes wither shut or wither away. Uh, there's the, the nasty headmistress who uh, walks around with large scissors and lots of string, which she uses to stitch up naughty children uh, and, and the object of this is to try to get out uh, and get back to your parents, but the, this, and, but the idea is that there is no escape because the children are already dead. That's horrible, Bob. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Sounds like a. Like it's, it was part of my what yeah. my series of, of games that would be like one shots, so that they're they use a simplified rule set and they give you the experience and then you just play it once or twice and then you're done. Let's see. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I with with the tear the tear spiders, I was already horrified, and then you just kept going. <laughs> I was like, good times. I like it. I like it. I'll play it. And again, Alan, you get to follow that one up. That's good a, luck. That's coming to Kickstarter, right? <laughs> uh, well, 
<laughs> eventually. Eventually. <laughs> when uh, he gets all that time and money, see? Right, right. I, I think in my mind, uh, I'd kind of bounce around between projects. There are some really cool licensed properties out there, official properties that I'd, I'd like to kind of play in those sandboxes for a little bit. Uh, the Hive from Destiny. Um, interstellar species built out of go go figure built out of worms uh <laughs> completely by accident it was not planned i promise uh Weird. squaring off against the the heroes of the solar system but i believe you sure yeah <laughs> nobody <laughs> no. believes you yeah no uh but the hive are squaring off against the heroes of the solar system who are imbued with light which generally makes them immortal uh, but one of the, the current NPCs in the storyline talks about how being immortal doesn't get rid of hunger. Uh, and every time I die, my, my ghost, his little flying buddy, keeps bringing him back. So he starves to death and he comes back to life and he starves to death and he comes back to life, life just until he starts fighting the hive again. And then things proceed forward. And I, th I think there's some really cool elements to draw out of that. Uh, there are some things that I'd love to do within some of the uh, like Ravenloft and Dungeons and Dragons properties. I know I'd, I'd like to do more uh, uh, earmuffs, Rob. I want to do some more Shadow of the Demon Lord stuff. <laughs> uh, man, given all the time and money, uh, Call of Cthulhu, I, I picked up those books for a reason. I just don't have time to explore that reason. Yo. Also, the Midwest is Yo. real weird. Oops. <laughs> the Midwest is real weird. Like I, I will agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. Hands down, no, no, no talk back there. Oh yeah, the uh, the current Call of Cthulhu line has a, an entire source book dedicated to Australia, and I'd love to see that for other parts of the world. Uh, the the Australia book is brilliantly researched, and I think there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can bring into that game from other regions. I'd, I'd be real excited to do one. Jenny, do you have a horror product you'd like to write? You're not really a horror person, so I would be. No, I'm gonna write you something. Did. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch all these horror products come out, and I'm gonna write something fluffy and light as a palate cleanser for each of them. <laughs> I, you know, I've got my purpose here. <laughs> you know what? Everybody got to do what they love. What's I yours? Would, I, yeah, I I would like to redo all of the different uh, Dark Lords of Ravenloft and update them for 5e and make them not awful. Mm. Okay. In my infinite spare time. Although, actually, you know what, though? Honestly, I might. I I love spooky space. That's like the one the one genre of horror where it's like, I do love. Um, so just like- Really? Like Event Horizon <laughs> and that kind of stuff? Contact with the unknown and, and you know, it just- it's absolutely terrifying because, well, first off, you have no idea what the fuck you're getting yourself into. And then you're like, you know, I'm just going to have an innocent conversation with them. And just like so many of the books like I grew up with, um, actually some of the Anne McCaffrey books, she's got some really great ones with um, yeah. contact with, Shippu you know, saying and all that. saying and all that. And you just kind of get yourself in over your head before you realize what you've done. And then you're like, you have all that dread of, oh God, how do I fix this? And then as you realize like, you've gone too far, you can't. You get right back to that despair and you're like, well, fuck. And then you start to contemplate, well, I mean, I can't save everyone else, but I don't have to deal with this. Should I just get out? Can I just like end this for me? And then it's just like that loop of like, no, I should try to save everybody. No, I can't. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of her books in that sense, but I can totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's definitely... Um... <laughs> If you just put space on it, I can deal with pretty much anything. Just make it space. Whatever right. in space, and it's fine. Fair, fair. <laughs> well, thank you, Rob and Alan, for talking with us today. Uh, how about you let folks know where to find you on the interwebs? Because God knows we're all staying in our houses these days. Yeah, well, I, I'm mostly, you can grab me on my website, schwalbentertainment.com um, on Facebook mostly uh, I do a little bit of Twitter and uh, schwalb underscore ent um, right now we're running a crazy good deal on bundle of holding uh, it's raising money for a really good cause the wildlife conservation uh, so uh, and you can get shadow of the demon lord and a whole bunch of other stuff for pennies so it's a good opportunity to to jump out there and find more about my game I was gonna pick it up but then I was like I think I already own these and I'd rather just give 20 bucks to you. So like, we can just do that too, right? Sure. Well, <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, if Shadow of the Demon Lord is on Humble Bundle, like y'all yeah, folks need to jump on that, like green on beans. Bundle of holding. Bundle of holding. Did I say something else? Humble Bundle. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> bundle of holding. All good. All right, Alan, where can everybody find you? Um. I, my, my social media is largely quiet right now, just 2020 doing 2020 things. But uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Wharftiner. It's a goofy name. It's misspelling of a terrible beer. Uh, I will admit that because I needed a unique name over 20 years ago, and I just don't feel like changing it now. Uh, outside of that, I do a lot of work with the Dungeons & Dragons Adventures League, and we just launched a, a, a new season, so I'm pretty well tied up with those responsibilities. Uh, but I'll, I'll peek out every now and again and do like a Beetle and Grimm unboxing video, or uh, I'll do some uh, occasional posts on, on Facebook, but that's usually with my, my child beast. Is a, I mean, he'll be four in December, so I'm real excited. All right, Paige, where can everybody find you? So you can find me on Twitter or Facebook at Paige Lightman, and that's spelled L-E-I-T-M-A-N. Or you can contact me through my website that I have with my husband, my co-author on everything. That would be benandpagewright.com. What about you, Jenny? Where can folks find you? You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, pretty much everywhere on the internet um, under my name. It's Jenny Loveday, G-I-N-N-Y-L-O-V-E-D-A-Y. You can find me on my website, which is JennyLoveday.com. And you can find the Roundtable on Twitter as well. It's D, the letter N, D, Roundtable. We're over on Facebook under the same. And you can always shoot us an email to dndroundtable at gmail.com. You got thoughts, comments, suggestions for shows, criticisms, whatever you want to lob at us, we're there. Please like us on Facebook, leave a review on Facebook, iTunes, wherever you find your podcast. We appreciate your support and feedback. That's it for this episode of The Roundtable. Until next time. See y'all next time. 